Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy and Lizzie. For those who might not know, I came to Cindy's house while she was not there. And Cindy's wonderful wife, Hootie, a.k.a. Elizabeth, hosted me. And so I was just the stand-in Cindy. I um, recorded a podcast. I did all the Cindy things. But I did not kiss your wife. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Boundaries. Thank you for being upfront about that. She's very wonderful. Anyone would be lucky to smooch her, but she is your wife and not mine. (laughs) (laughs) Our first podcast together in 2023. Happy New Year, bud. I've had some conversations with people recently. So we have a new puppy and it's a girl. And we call her Bud. Like her name is Puddles, but she's got like tons of nicknames. And one of them is Bud. Like, come here, bud. And both of our moms have been like, why do you call your girl dog Bud? Yes, Bud is coded male. And I just refuse to accept that. As if friendship is for men. It's not. It's for all of us. I also have a girl cat, and I never call her Bud. And the other day, because I've been calling the puppy Bud so mm-hmm. much, I called her Bud. It felt strange. But then I was like, I'm going to work through this. Okay, but you're my Bud, Cindy. You're also my Bud. Love it. Hey, Bud. Hey, Bud. And hey, Bud, you, our listener. It's 2023. Uh, Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. We're a listener-supported operation. You can make a contribution. Get a beanie. Basicfolk.com. And you can find your beanie there and support us. It's wintertime. You need one. Um, you can also sign up for our newsletter at our website. Today we have... An exciting guest. We really do. That we learned how to pronounce his name recently. Anthony D'Amato. That's true. Is his name? He told us that if you're in Italy, they probably say D'Amato. But he says D'Amato so that people can know how to spell it and know how to find it. Before we get into Anthony, Lizzie, is there anything you want to update us on? Yeah. What's going on with you? Um, I think by the time people are listening to this, I will be on my way to the UK, England, and Scotland, and Northern Ireland. I've never played over there. I've never performed over there. I will be at Americana Fest UK and Celtic Connections and the Out to Lunch Festival. I'm so excited. And then I'm going to the West Coast of the US of A. People can look at lizzieno.com for those tour dates. 
I have really been looking forward to headlining on the West Coast. I feel like it's been building for many years. It's a place I love so much. And I'm bringing John Calvin Abney, basic folk alum, and Nelson Williams, who's a wonderful bass player. So people are going to really love those shows. Should we talk about our guest today? Yeah, I would love to. Anthony Diamato. Anthony Diamato is a friend of mine, which I always feel like I have to declare at the top of the podcast so people won't be like, oh, she spoke so highly of this person. And then later I found out they were friends. It's crooked. Deception. It's crooked all the way to the top. Yeah, I'm friends with this man. I admire him. (laughs) Okay. But I admired him before we were friends. So maybe that's important to say. I don't know. That was my journalistic disclosure. So when I first moved Mm -hmm. to New York City in 2015 with hopes of becoming a superstar singer-songwriter, I needed some advice and I needed to find people who were doing it well and sustainably and were having some success. And Anthony Diamato was crushing it. Um, He was just like so professional. He was fresh off of his New West Records debut, The Shipwreck from the Shore. He was touring, um, putting out great music, and he was kind enough to take me out for coffee and give me some advice about how to turn this dream into a job. And it meant everything to me at the time, and it still does. I look back at that time, and there must have been tons of people asking him, like, how'd you do it? Um, And he was so generous in sharing, like, how do you, you know, elevate your craft? How do you find a good manager? All of these like practical um, aspects of being a songwriter that are a little bit harder to break down than like, you know, do I want to do it? Um, so seven mm-hmm. years later, it was so nice to kind of come full circle and bookend that early conversation with an in-depth basic folk interview with Anthony. He has a new album out. It's called At First There Was Nothing. It's his first new album in six years, and it showcases so much of what makes Anthony special as an artist. Um, Neat wordplay, a sophisticated visual language that's bolstered by his skills as a wildlife photographer. Um, And he has these signature production things that I've always noticed in his albums, like across all of his work for years and years, there's like a signature Anthony sound. And I was really eager to dig into that. So we investigated what those signatures are in our interview. Um, The album is produced Mm -hmm. by another um, folk rock singer songwriter star, Joshua James. Um, And it's a really gorgeous album that was produced in American Fork, Utah. And you can kind of hear the West in this new album. If you listen all the way through to the end, to the lightning round, you will hear me get into a fight on air with my friend, Anthony, um, (laughs) because there would be no folk music without bloodshed. I think people are really, really Mm going to enjoy this new album. It's getting a lot of praise from places like American Songwriter. Um, This is my conversation with Anthony Diamato. Cool. Let's check out a song from Anthony's new album. He must have a thing about ships. Yeah. Because uh, this song is called Ships in the Night. And then we'll hear Lizzie No and Anthony Diamato on Basic Folk.
Welcome to Basic Folk. Thank you for, for having me. For the very me. first time. It's it's shocking. It's novel. Yeah. It's it's totally surprising. It, everything's so surprising. I can't imagine. Where are you right now? <laughs> I am in the Econo Lodge in uh, Sturbridge, Massachusetts. Oh, uh, wow. Just a place I like to hang out, you know, collect yeah, my thoughts, lo- have a little me time. That- <laughs> I mean, who among us hasn't really felt the urge to unwind at the Econo Lodge? Specifically the one in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, though. Yes, yes. That's the that's the top one. Yeah. Okay, let's take it way back to the beginning of your life. We've got a lot of questions. Yeah, fire away. How far back does your connection to animals go? Like, what is your earliest memory of, like, being around a non-human animal and being like, that's my friend? We, we had uh, animals growing up all the time uh in the house when i was a kid and I, I think probably fun funnily enough the earliest ones that i remember are cats that i think my parents had bef- before i was born and didn't live too much longer after that so i didn't have like a super tight connection with them but i do remember there being cats around the house and then when i got a little bit older that was when we kind of started getting pets that were like the kids pets you know so we got a dog. Oh, really? What were those? We got a, we had a dog named Screwball who was, uh, she was a Dalmatian. She was a rescue dog from Puerto Rico who'd been hit by a car and brought back to the States. And she was amazing. She was part Dalmatian, part Whippet. So she kind of looked like a greyhound, but she had spots and like one black ear and one black eye. Laziest dog ever. All she wanted to do was just sleep and, and lay around. But the way that you could tell she was uh, truly a D'Amato dog, uh, was that she got very car sick. Uh, anytime she had to go for a drive, she would like start, she would drool and throw up in the back seat. So we had to bring like a plastic bag and, and catch her puke and throw it out every time we went to a rest stop. But oh, charming. It, got, it got to the point, it got <laughs> to the point that when you pulled the car around to the front of the house and she saw that it was like time to go somewhere, she would just start drooling and puking in the front yard. And that's how you know she was my dog because her anxiety was to the point that the mere sight of the thing that made her sick itself made her sick. Which is so efficient, actually. It did not get rid of all of... I should clarify. Oh, no. It wasn't like she, she, just, she got this she just out of started the way. Early. <laughs> it, just, it just started early. <laughs> I take back what I said. Yeah. Oh, poor screwball. She was a Who great dog, relate, though? though. I can relate. Yeah. I can relate. I absolutely. I do that now. I'll be on tour and I'll see something that likes, like, oh, I know that's going to be stressful later. And then, you know, mm-hmm. then I'll, I'm, I'm in that moment, even though it hasn't even you started bring this, yet. 
you bring the stress home within before the stimulus even comes near you. Right, which which just makes things that much worse. But, you know, yeah. we're simple creatures, uh, you know. And have you always been imaginative in other ways? Or was it just anxiety? Or did you create, like, imagined worlds in your mind as a kid? Oh, yeah, I definitely did that. Um, they were probably anxious worlds. But I did, I did create really? a lot of worlds uh, in my head for sure. And, you know, I think it's probably like uh, an escapism sort of thing for me as, as it is for most people. Just the, you know, if you're someplace that you're not like super psyched on being in the moment, you're like, well, how could this be more interesting? That, yeah, I, some, sometimes people call that like a, a maladaptive um, coping mechanism if it goes too far. That, but it sounds like you keep it in control because you're a, you're a well-adjusted adult, wouldn't you say? I don't feel like that's for me to say. Okay, I will let okay. the other people in my life decide <laughs> if I'm a well-adjusted <laughs> adult. Both parts of that phrase, well-adjusted and adult, I think can be called into question. Yeah. Okay, so you grew up in New Jersey, just like I did. Mm -hmm. What do you think is like the most New Jersey thing about you? Uh, that I've seen Bruce Springsteen like, 54 times really something crazy like that yeah it's up there that's a lot of times it's a lot of time it is it's a lot of times mm -hmm. but i'm gonna go again on this tour how has bruce's show changed since like the first time you saw him like what was your first experience seeing bruce my first live? experience seeing him live i guess was probably the like e street band reunion tours uh yeah. in like 99 so mm-hmm you know, I was I was pretty young then. Still, I was probably I guess I would have been like twelve, and I knew the music because, you know, it was kind of just always being played in our mm -hmm. home. Uh, but I didn't. I wasn't like familiar enough with it to be like, oh man, he's playing a deep cut now, or you know, right. like that kind of like I didn't. I didn't know what to get super excited about. I was just like, this is the this is the biggest, most intense show I've ever seen, and it's awesome. Um, in terms of how it's it's changed over the years, that's a good question. I mean, they, they lost Clarence. Uh, they yeah. lost Danny. I feel like it's become a bit more of like, trying to think how to say this. I, I think uh, it's, it's more of a team effort now than it's ever been. I think, you mm. know, with the loss of Clarence, they started bringing in like a whole horn section, you know, to replace, because you can't replace that guy. Right. But so do something different. You bring in a whole horn section. And, and, you know, and some more backup singers and that. So it does kind of feel like it's, um, it's kind of more of like a, a family or, or a group thing now, mm -hmm. rather than like the Bruce Springsteen show, which I, I, again, I, I hesitate to say that because so the band has always been very important in that aspect. But I, I do think now that the band isn't in quotes, the band, the way it was in the early days, that I think they're finding ways to uh, make that circle larger and bring in more guests and be more collaborative That's with beautiful. it. That's beautiful. I want to go back to when you're 12 yeah. and you see Bruce Springsteen for the first time. Were you playing music yourself at that time? Like, I'm curious what you're, what was going through your mind as you're seeing a show that huge. Did you already have thoughts in your mind of like, I'm going to do that when I grow up? Or was it something that was really far away from you? You know, I, I'm i trying to remember. I think I probably had started playing guitar a little bit at mm -hmm. that point um, in 1999. I, I would think that that was, if I didn't, it was right around that time. But I, I do think the way... 
that my dad had kind of tested the waters of like, would you like a guitar or would you be interested in it? Was Because I've been taking piano lessons since I was a kid, but I remember at, at one point, again, it was like a Springsteen thing that was on TV or something. It was a performance. And my dad asked me, like, does that look like fun? Is that something like you would want to do? And I was like, of course it looks like fun. It's, it's like something everybody would want to do. Um, and like, that was, yeah. I think the Christmas <laughs> that I got a guitar. So, wow. um, you know, it, it does all, it, you ask the most New Jersey thing about me. It's that pretty much everything somehow traces back to Bruce Springsteen. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so then, okay. So we're in New Jersey. We're making our, I'm, we're, we're taking our Anthony D'Amato hero's journey. You see the big show, you're playing guitar. Okay. Then you go to the fancy private school. Talk about that time. Like, I think there's, I, I, I focus on this because I too was a scholarship kid at a fancy New Jersey private school. And I do think it's a particular type of experience that gives you an awareness of yourself, um, an awareness of sort of earning your way in the world. Um, so how did like that time in your life, your time at private school kind of influence how you think about learning and, and think about yourself as a, you know, an achiever, a worker, a learner. Yeah. You know, I, I think being a, a scholarship kid from a, a family that, you know, wasn't loaded. Uh, it was kind of a sense of, you know, every day you got to earn your keep, uh, which is, which is a weird, uh, pressure to put on yourself as a, you know, 15 year old or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah. It, and, and it was, it was also the sense of like, well, this is only one step, you know, you've got to do well enough here that you can get like the real good scholarships for the real good colleges. You know, you can't come out of here and then, you know, be mediocre and, and have to yeah. pay for school that we can't pay for, for college or whatever. So it was one of those things where it was kind of like, I, I put a lot of, of pressure on myself. That was also around the time. So I, like I said, I started playing guitar maybe when I was 12 or 13 and it was, mm -hmm. it, it was an electric guitar it was like a Fender Stratocaster and I just, I enjoyed it, but it didn't quite click with me because I wasn't in a band and like yeah. solo electric Stratocaster is like not the most compelling thing when you're sitting in your, your room. Like I was never like a, there's a few indie artists today I think I, would like a word. Yeah. I was just, <laughs> I was never like a scales and solos person. Right. And, and uh, so it was when I was in, in high school that I got my first acoustic. And then I was like, okay, I can, and, you know, and then I started playing harmonica. And it's like, I can do the Bob Dylan thing. I can do the mm -hmm. Leonard Cohen thing. I can, you know, I can play by myself. I can, I can write the song. I can, you know, figure out how to record it. I can, everything, I can do it myself alone at home. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that became uh, a real emotional outlet for a stressed out anxious kid <laughs> yeah you you know recording yourself it seems like has always been a part of your artistic output what were some of those first recordings you made you know I I think the the very very first recordings would have been like you know my my parents are out of the house so it's empty and I would go grab my dad's old like uh cassette recorder mm -hmm. you know that he would use to like 
again, bring it back to Bruce, he would he would record the bootleg, you know, concerts he was at. Oh my god. But, uh, but I would use that cassette recorder and just record myself like covering songs just to see like what I sounded like, you know? Mm-hmm. So at the time it might have been like a Pete Yorn song or something, you know, that I was like really into, something that was new that had just come out. Um and that's kind of how I worked my I guitar love Pete lessons. Yorn. I love Pete Yorn. He's 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 uh you know, that that first record Music for the Morning After was like oh my a huge reason that I started writing songs. Yeah, no skips on that. Yeah. Name a bad song on that album. And then and he took me out for like my first shows and stuff and he he was super integral in, in all of this. So shout out to to Pete Yorn for always Love you, being Pete. so supportive and just a, a great guy. Um, but yeah, that was probably how I started was, was probably like, you know, recording Pete Yorn covers on a cassette tape mm-hmm. and then listening back and being like, Ugh, I hope nobody hears this, you know, <laughs> what was it about it? That was uncomfortable. Uh, it was, it was my voice. I, I feel like that's everybody. Nobody likes their voice at first. Yeah. And, and I just, I'd never sung. I didn't know anybody who sang uh, mm-hmm. that was not like, you know, I didn't come from a singing, dancing family. Uh, so I was like, you know, trying to figure it out and I, I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, but it's one of the things I feel like I've learned along the way is any voice can be good and interesting and compelling. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, the tone or the quality or, or the strength of it or how they hit the notes or if they hit the notes, if you believe what they're saying, then it's, it's great. Some of my favorite singers are not good singers by traditional standards, but man, I am locked in on every single word coming out of their mouth. I firmly want to believe that, but, but it's like, I feel like I'm, I I believe that about other people, but when it comes to my own recordings, I'm like, you better be in tune and, and And, nearly perfect. And (laughs) I've, I've had to, that's one of the things you're talking about before the idea of, of, you know, that recording myself was important to me Mm -hmm. when I finally started letting go of that and letting other people Mm -hmm. produce records. I don't know if you've had this experience when you're working with someone else and you're like, Oh, I'd like to take another crack at that because my voice kind of broke in the middle of that note and when the producer says you like no that was cool we're keeping that and I'm like no that's a mistake I didn't mean to do that and they're like I don't care it sounds cool we're keeping it yeah that's a really hard thing to accept like anything less than perfection from yourself but you have to be able to step outside of that and be like you know the things that I love listening to the most are not perfection they're like humanity you know Oh, it's so freeing to get there. Yeah, but it's, it's so freeing to get to that place and let yourself listen to your music as someone else might listen to it. It's so hard to do. I I, I still don't know that I'm there, but I'm, I'm at least at a point where I can allow myself to believe it when someone else says to me, like, yeah, that was cool. You know, I'm like, okay, I believe that that was cool to you. And I believe that because that <laughs> it would be cool to other people. It's not yeah. cool to me because it sounds like me messing up. But yes, I am going to accept that other people might enjoy that.
speaking of collaboration, let's go, let's travel to Princeton University. Tell us how you got into poetry. So the, the funny thing there is, uh, I would hesitate to even, uh, describe myself as someone who like got really into poetry or, or took a lot of poetry classes and stuff because I, I didn't really, I mean, I, I do love, you know, I love a good poem as much as the next man, Mm -hmm. but I, I didn't set out to study poetry. What, what happened there was that, um, Paul Muldoon, who I think, you know, uh, as well. Love you, Paul. Hi. Um, he was the head of the the arts program and, and obviously a Pulitzer prize winning poet. And I think he was poetry editor at the New Yorker even at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he was also really into rock and roll music. He had a band and he wrote lyrics with Warren Zevon and stuff. So I sought him out as someone who I thought could help make my songwriting better. And also because uh, at a school like that, you know, I, I feel like things are, are changing there and, and elsewhere now. But at the time, it was like, if you wanted to go through the music program, your choices were uh, classical or like conducting an orchestra or the jazz ensemble. And I was like, what if you want to be a vaguely alternative folk singer? And that wasn't really, you know, believe it or not, a course of study at the time. <laughs> so I, I went to I went to Professor Muldoon and I just said, you know, here's what I'd like to to do like rather than for my performance credits rather than being in the jazz ensemble like I want to come and work on songwriting with you and he was game so I would you know every so often I would have a new batch of songs and I would bring them to him with the printed out lyrics and stuff and he'd spend some time with them and mark them up with a red pen and then I'd come sit with him and we'd go through the lyrics and he'd show me you know where uh something could be tighter or where you know this image ties in nicely to that image and in ways that I hadn't even intentionally done or, or thought about, but made me start thinking more intentionally about that going forward. You know, he, he mm-hmm. you know, in addition to showing me where, you know, perhaps my instincts had led me astray and created something that was, you know, confusing or, or could be cleaned up. He also helped me understand places where my instincts were good and could be built on in, in future stuff so that it's not just, you know, coincidence that I land in a place like that, that I could intentionally right. direct myself there. That's kind of a trip. I I did a little bit of that in college where I was like, I really want to be writing songs, but I also have all of these assignments due. Right. Can I, can I twist it into a creative writing poetry lyrical yeah, assignment? Yeah. But there is something a little bit frightening about taking your personal lyrics. I always find songwriting to be such a personal project. And then, like, let's bring it to the classroom setting. Did that kind of, like, less less personal type of process change how you looked at your own output? You know, uh, because it was just me and him, it wasn't like I was going up in front of a classroom and presenting yeah. and, and all that. It it didn't feel like it, it was becoming less personal or anything. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just felt like a collaboration, kind of. And, and I took, right. like, composition courses there too where it was like you know the other students in the class they might compose like a little classical suite or something like that Mm -hmm. and I would come in and I would have like just a song that I wrote uh, and I played on guitar and sing it you know and I do think maybe on some level I got desensitized to like I have to share this with people uh, otherwise I I don't get credit for for the class so you know, that there wasn't the option to be that like, oh, no, 
I write songs, but I don't like to share them with people. You know, right. I couldn't be that person. Well, I had that's to- a hell of a way to break the ice. Like, instead of going to open mics, you brought yeah. um, your songs to a schmancy university. That's, like, a really interesting way to, like, break out into, like, okay, here are my things. I'm sharing them. I'm inviting critique. Yeah, and then I would, you know, I would start taking the train into New York from there and go play shows in New York at, you know, little bars and and stuff like that and so I felt like I was kind of getting you know both sides of of the experience you need I was I was getting the intellectual side of like let's sit down with the song and a piece of paper uh you know with the words on it and go through it a line at a time and then I was getting like let's go to the loud drunk talkative bar and see what songs people respond to and uh you know I feel like somewhere in between those two worlds of feedback you can kind of figure out what's working and what's not okay so was that the that's the editing and feedback process that went into paperback bones i'm assuming yeah i mean even even before that i i made one collection of songs actually i probably did a couple of collections of songs like in my dorm room at school and just you know self-released those and then uh i've I've let those all gently drift out of print uh, as an act of mercy uh to myself and the universe um but now the basic folk audience is aware of them and we're gonna hunt them down they they probably can be found they're 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 burned onto cdrs uh throughout the greater new jersey area um cdrs oh yeah back in as this back in the cdr day and uh, yeah. I couldn't afford the RWs. You got to stick with the R's. Um, yeah. But I, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I would say I guess paperback bones. I, I made that in my apartment in New York after I graduated. So it, it was post being in school, but it was still like carrying all of those lessons with me. In re-listening to all of your music that's available to stream um, for this episode, I was struck by the fact that even though it's very early and like your sound has matured a lot, sonically there are still some hallmarks of like what I would describe as like the Anthony D'Amato sound in that, in that first, first ish album. So like, what would you describe as like sonic hallmarks of your recordings? Yeah, I am, uh, I am a big proponent of, uh, vocal doubling and again, uh, you know, that's that's a thing that I learned from just listening to my favorite songwriters and artists. And and I think it, it was probably even something I took from from listening to Bright Eyes Records and being like, oh, if your voice isn't like, you know, uh, technically perfect and you're not technically right in the center of every note, mm-hmm. doubling your vocals can kind of cover that and add more energy and but I did this thing where when I first started recording I, I was very uh naive about how uh recording software works and all that and so I had a little M audio preamp and a and a little condenser mic and you know you plug in your XLR cable to one end to the condenser mic and you plug it into mm-hmm. one of the two ports on the uh on the M audio preamp. It has like a left channel and a right channel for stereo recordings. Uh, and I would start recording and I was like, okay, well I want to make a stereo song. It's, it's the 
It's the 2000s. You got to be in stereo. We're not doing mono. Got to. Absolutely got to. And, and, and of course, <laughs> because I had one microphone plugged into one channel, it would only come in on one side of the, the wave file. So I would just be recording left channel audio only. And I thought that meant something was like broken or I was doing it wrong, but I couldn't figure it out. So rather than, uh, you know, actually like talk to someone and just realize like I should be recording these things in, in mono, uh, or get another mic and record in stereo, I started recording stuff one channel at a time. So I would record my left channel vocal and then I would plug it into the right and record my right channel vocal. And I would do that with guitars (laughs) and stuff. And you know, sometimes I would just copy and paste the left channel into the right, which would make it sound like it was right down the middle. But a lot mm-hmm. of times I would I would double up. I would record left and right separately. Uh, and that became, I, I think, uh, a hallmark of, of what you're hearing from that record. And then what I do now, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not recording that way now. But I'm really into using up all of the sonic space from left to right panning really matters to Mm -hmm. me and uh making things feel really thick and lush and headphones really matters to me i want you to feel like you're surrounded by the song and enveloped by it and that probably started accidentally uh in those early days of of not understanding how to properly do it i will call this chapter of your life story cis man refuses to ask for directions inadvertently stumbles upon really solid recording technique yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't recommend it as a recording technique <laughs> in general because, you know, while it does sound awesome on on headphones uh, to, where you and have those scary. separate channels speaker. on speakers, it it can get a little. And I, you know, it was it was among reasons I kind of let those very early things start to yeah. start to drift out. I feel like on on paperback bones, I started to really get the the hang of of how to make that work in my benefit, but. Now I feel like I've come far enough that working with other producers and stuff, I am comfortable not double tracking my voice and just having one yeah. single live vocal take be the vocal and and being able to accept that. And then being like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good. It doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like I'm trying to cover something up. Uh you know, I think there's a time and a place for both. So on on the on my new record, there's there's some that are double tracked, and there's some that are just one raw vocal take. And oh yeah, I'm I'm learning I'm learning now how to figure out when, you know, that it it doesn't have to be all one or the other, and when it's appropriate. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this new album, but first I have a couple more questions about those kind of early New York years, like the ship, the shipwreck from the shore Uh days. That to me seemed like your breakout album. And what it came with was like, you've, you'd been at it for a while. Mm -hmm. You'd been writing, recording and performing, but it seems like at that time with that album, there was just an explosion in visibility, like literally more eyes and ears were on you. And knowing you as a friend, I know that you're shy and reserved at times and and so I wonder what it felt like in your body to be up on stages in front of so many new people and and part of why I'm curious about this is the song Middle Ground. Yeah. Um I ke- I I always come back to that song and I feel like it's such an interesting description of that time in your life maybe um where the lyric says I used to be alone now I can't escape the crowd 
every night I go out looking for the middle ground. So can you talk about like that, that moment in your life? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that song, you know, predates any of that kind of stuff that the, Mm -hmm. the, the shipwreck story was, I was about to start recording another album after paperback bones, the same way that I thought I had been doing, you know, in the past, I was going to make it at home, do it myself. And then I kind of decided, you know, I know what this is going to sound like if I do that. I've I've done this before. I've been down this road. Yeah. Uh, I was I was working a, a day job at the time, and I was like, you know what? I've been saving up for for something, and you know, this is this is what it's going to be. I'm going to go make a record. I'm going to take this leap of faith. I'm going to put all my savings into going and making a record with a real producer in a real studio. And uh, so I went and I recorded that up in Maine with Sam Kassir from from Josh Ritter's band. Mm-hmm. And while you know, we were probably about 80% of the way through recording that was when uh, the record label came in and decided to pick it up. And they hadn't even like heard it. They just heard the older stuff. And I was like, well, I'm in the mm-hmm. middle of making this new record. So by the time I signed a record deal and was able to leave my day job and be touring full time and all that kind of stuff and having the press that you're talking about, the record had been done for like, you know, six or eight months. So those songs were, weren't really about, uh, that so much as they were about, you know, coming out. I think it's, I think it's probably an early twenties thing for everybody, but especially I feel like an early twenties thing, like or mid twenties, whatever I was coming out of a breakup where, you know, you kind of start ping ponging a little bit between the extremes of like, okay, this long-term relationship I was in was was just over and now I'm going to go out every night and because I have no no obligations, I have no ties, I'm going to go, yeah. I'm just going to go be, you know, single guy out in the world. And then you do that for a little bit and you're like, well, that's exhausting, you know. That's yeah. that's not, <laughs> that's not really all that. That's expensive. Up to be. So now I'm going to be like hermit guy who's at home every day just working on music and writing and, you know, honing my craft or whatever you tell mm-hmm. yourself you're doing. And and that's also exhausting in its own way and not super healthy. And so that song was just about trying to find that that place where you can be uh, you know, not trying to fill every empty quiet moment in your life with something whether it's filling it with other people or filling it with, you know, uh, work or whatever it is. It's about learning to, to sit still and, and be okay and, and say, you know what, I went out yesterday and that was a nice experience. And today I'm going to stay home and, uh, I'm going to find that middle ground where I don't just run myself into a, a big old fiery wreck. How's that going? You know, I think it's going pretty well for me. These days. I mean, you're on tour right now. I think it's hard to do, to find a middle ground on tour. For me, the the middle ground, the way I, I've I've found my middle ground on tour is uh, to bring my camera with me. I'm really into mm-hmm. photography. Uh, that's always been like a thing that I care about deeply. And for the first few times I went on tour, like especially going on tour in like England, and I would be opening up for somebody else and I might be like riding in their van with them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought tour was like, it was cool, but it was also kind of depressing because it was like, 
I'm on somebody else's schedule and all I'm really seeing of this place that like, you know, growing up, my parents didn't fly. So I never saw anything that you couldn't take a train to or drive to. And so I was like, all of a sudden I'm in Europe, but I was like, it's gray, it's rainy, it gets dark at 3 p.m. And all I'm really seeing are like the venues and the hotels and the highway between them. And and I had this idea of, of tour as just kind of like grim sort of experience um, yeah. except for the shows there were these highlights and then I started to bring uh, my good camera with me and travel on my own like even if I was opening for somebody I'd say you know what like I'm gonna figure out how to drive on the left side of the road in England I'm gonna you know eat the cost of, of renting this car even though it's going into the you know the, whatever little profits I'm making but I want to have my own experience of this place that I'm in and that changed everything then then touring became this incredibly rewarding, rich experience for me because the shows were already the thing that I loved. But then it was like every day was a reason to like get up at the crack of dawn and be like, okay, I'm driving two hours out of my way to this next show because I want to go see this crazy thing and go photograph it. Or I want to go do long exposure night photography of this thing with the stars. Mm -hmm. And and so it was like, there wasn't suddenly there wasn't enough hours in the day to do all the things mm-hmm. that I wanted to do and see all the things that I wanted to do on tour. And, uh, so that, that for me was the, the middle ground maker. I think of tour was mm. to find a way to make it not all just green room, hotel, gas station, green room, hotel, gas station. Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. Suddenly now I feel like I'm seeing your, artistic journey out to Utah in a new light was the chance to photograph a part of what sent you out there um, to work on this new record? You know, I I can't say that that was like a a determining factor for me. The determining factor was, was Joshua James uh, who produced Mm -hmm. this record and is a songwriter that I'm just a humongous fan of. And we got paired up together for some shows in, in Sweden a while back and hit it off and, I just love the sound of his. He's phenomenal. He's great. Oh, I'm wearing. You're wearing, I'm wearing Joshua my James Joshua shirt? James nice. shirt. Okay. Yeah. Shout out to my shout out partner to used to design. He, I think, hand stamped this oh, way nice. back in the day. Man, uh, there are good people out there, and so I, I had this idea of uh, going out to Utah and Joshua producing and him putting together the band of all local people and me just kind of parachuting in and being like, "Here's the songs. Like, what would you do with them? Where would you take them?" Right. Uh, but that said, while I was out there, I absolutely, uh, you know, would get up in the morning and, and I would take, uh, you know, Joshua would let me borrow the 15 passenger van he would tour in and I would drive that, uh, around and, and go get photos. And, and one day uh, his drummer, uh, Timmy took me up on the Alpine loop there outside of American Fork to go do like, yeah. you know, fall foliage photos and stuff. And, and I, I love that. And the cover of the new record is a Utah photo that I took um, on riding a train, riding the California Zephyr across Utah. And it's shot out the window. So it's like one of those things where, you know, the cliffs in the distance look solid and steady. And the foreground is like this kind of blur of motion. And that kind of felt like what the record was to me. And that also led me to doing this thing where I'm sure you encounter this at shows where people are like, I don't have a CD player anymore. Like my car doesn't play CDs. My computer doesn't play yeah. CDs. So with this album, I decided to, besides releasing it as, um, uh, you know, vinyl and CD, I also put, 
put it out as a book of my photographs from the road. And then the very last page of it has a card with a unique download code on it. So you open up the book and it's got these big full page photos and lyrics and an essay about the record and all that stuff. It's kind of like a visual companion for it. Um, but you can download it and that way you can listen even if you don't have a, a CD player in your car anymore. What an interesting way to take in your art. I wish that more artists had sort of multimedia experiences and it could be different for each one. Like for you, it would be photographs. There are artists who I'd love to like have a recipe per song. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to, yeah. I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the coming uh, years because the CDs yeah. are just, they're becoming more and more obsolete for better or for worse. And I've seen, uh, I just saw an artist the other day who was, was selling their album as it was like a seed packet or something, QR code. So you like scan the QR code and you get the album on your phone and then you put it in some soil and water it and stuff and a plant grows out of it, you know? Um, that's amazing. So I think, I think you're going to see coincidentally, that's what I want done with my body when I die. That's what my, my wife, she wants to be a tree. Who wouldn't want to be a tree? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I, 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 I don't know what I want. I kind of like, better think fast. I know it's, it's coming up. It's, it's <laughs> if I have to stay at the Econo Lodge, uh, much longer, it might, it I'm might so be today. Sorry. Um, no, I, 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 I totally get that. I understand the, the wanting to be a, a tree or something. I think regardless of what happens to me, I, I feel like the, I feel like one of the best tributes you see to people ever are uh, like the benches with the plaque, you know, like in loving oh, memory. Yeah. If you have one of those, like a really scenic spot, you're like, man, that person must've been great. You know, you, yes. see, you see one of those benches like and it's in, like, in a botanic garden. Yeah. Like, or like, on, so you know, nice. overlooking the ocean on a cliff or something. But then you see some that are just like, you know, like by a brick wall and a dumpster and you're like, that person must not have been very good. I know, that would be a really nice way to like roast someone after their death. Yeah, I'm sure Um, someone has ironically dedicated (laughs) a shitty bench. (laughs) Okay, so I want to talk about two songs on your new record at first there was nothing okay so kind of strange and everything does to me those songs both live in sort of the greek tragedy world of fixed destiny where kind of no matter where you move the pieces around at the beginning they all puzzle together at the end towards this sort of inevitability do you live in that world as a as a person do you feel like there are things about our destiny that are completely out of our control? I, th- I think so. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily think of it, especially a song like Kind of Strange, for instance, where that inevitability isn't necessarily coming from a like predestination, higher power, spiritual thing. To me, in that song in particular, the the forces at play that are making the inevitable come true are they're more economic and political and racial and they're they're mm-hmm. they're human constructs um and i think i think that's where i see the the kind of uh you know you talk about the pieces all ending up in the same place like i think that is you know a place where i i you can look at 
the way we've designed our society and there very much are pawns and kings and queens and they can move in any direction that they want but the no matter how free you feel you know as as that pawn figure or something it's like there's really only Mm -hmm. one direction you can go and and you can tell yourself that i'm i'm choosing that uh but if that's the only choice available to you are you really choosing it i need to think about that for a minute yeah i'll go to the ice machine oh god Stop reminding me that you're in the Econo Lodge. I I hate that for you. People need to realize how unglamorous touring really is. Um, okay, so the song "But I Go." Uh-huh. Um, how did you build it? How would you describe for someone like the texture and sound of that song? And um, can you just like talk about the process of creating yeah. that texture? So that was the song where we had pretty much recorded everything that I had come to the sessions with and Joshua was like, I think we need one more song. Why don't we try to write one together from scratch? And so I had that, I had that finger picked lick that kind of is, is the anchor of the melodies. And Joshua had this chorus that he started doing. And, and I think, honestly, I think those lyrics were, placeholder lyrics at first that he just kind of was because just to get a melody down and I was like one of those things where like oh what actually what are you what are you saying there and he's he was saying you know I don't know where I go when I go I don't know but I go and I was like that actually kind of spoke to me in that way of you know we were talking about imagination and stuff before and I I don't know if you're a, a daydreamer the way that I am but big time okay so You'll have those moments where someone's just like, hey, you, you know, where'd you go? You there? Because uh, you're sitting with them, <laughs> but you're just like, you're somewhere completely else. And and that to me, that sparked this idea of being able to leave, you know, internally, like without going anywhere. And, and, the, and the beautiful, that can be a beautiful thing. And it can also be a sad thing. It can also be a scary, it can also be a disconnection thing. It can be a, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how the song kind of shifts at the end. Like it sort of goes from the like daydreaminess of, I don't know where I go when I go to that very last verse where the, the vocal chops down and it's it, the line is like, I didn't catch a thing. Was I here with you? Have I ever been? And that, yeah. that moment of like, man, thinking about like, have you been, have you been daydreaming your way through like an entire relationship or something, you know, right. where you're just like, Oh, do I even know this person? Do they even know me? Or have I just been knowing like a projection of them that I created in in my head and that's who I've I've been with all this time or something, you know? Or have they been doing this? That same is thing? heavy. That's really heavy. Yeah. It reminds me of the uh, song on the new Anais Mitchell record, The Words. Oh, where like it can be really lonely to be with somebody who's in their mind trying to find the words. Yeah. You should ask, you should ask my boyfriend Cole about that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Where'd you go just now? Right. It's like so common. Yeah. It's such a common, uh, conversation. And I I think it's, you know, and you're asking about the textures of that song. I I think we were trying to, uh, in some way sort of capture that, that distance and that dreaminess of it. So there's pedal steel and there's like yeah, multiple finger picked guitars that are kind of layered on top of each other. And it's, it's supposed to feel light in, in 
drifty and then it gets kind of heavy and intense by the mm-hmm. end and, and the drums come in and there's this kind of uh, relentless kind of kick drum to it that just kind of powers it through and until it eventually just kind of drifts into nothing and uh and there's even a moment too which again another accidental thing where we originally thought that song was going to be a fade out to end and as as joshua was kind of pulling down the faders he missed he missed the piano or something so basically Mm -hmm. all the instruments faded out but the piano kept going through and then so we just faded them all the instruments back in and it made this moment again of that feeling of like you know when you kind of like snap back into it after you've been like so all of the textures and sounds in that song i think uh, you know, even if it was unintentional when we landed on it, uh, all the things we kept about it were to serve that idea of kind of disappearing inside your own head. That is such a cool um, journey into a song. How, this is your first album in six years, correct? Yeah, it's the first al- the first full album I've released in six years. I would say we probably started recording this in like 2017, 2018. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably was... was finished-ish. Well, I take that back because I thought it was probably finished in 2018, 2019, and you figured we release it in 2020, and then obviously plans changed. Um, but then, yeah. I, I, then I did go back into it during 2020 and, and maybe even 2021 and uh, made some changes to stuff, you know, with the, with the benefit of, of hindsight and added a few textural things here and there. I redid my vocals on one song, um, to, to change a few, you know, lyrical kind of things and stuff. So mm-hmm. I brought in some other harmonies on stuff. So it's the first record I've released in, in six years, but the songs, you know, themselves were probably written not all that long after, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after Cold Snap, which was my, my second studio record. Um, it's such a beautiful album. It's already getting some very rave reviews, which I think are very well-deserved. It's really interesting as someone that's followed your, um, who's been listening to music for a a while since we've been buddies. Um, This album feels like such an interesting homecoming for you. So I'm I'm glad that you're coming on Basic Folk now with this record um, to talk about your journey well thank you so much for for having me and and yeah i think you're i think you're right about that it does this feels like uh uh this feels like a very comfortable well it feels like a comfortable conversation to have with you about a a record that i'm i'm really proud and and comfortable talking about in in a way that sometimes i think previous records either they they you know the process of making it was like a really uh difficult stressful one or something and i didn't know how to talk about it or this or that and this one it was just fun to make and the songs are fun to play and Mm -hmm. i'm finding now that i'm starting to do press for it and stuff that they're fun to talk about and it just feels yeah it feels good so yeah i think this is the right time okay before i let you go i want to talk a little bit about fantastic cat yes you are in a super group this band is one of the most a super group one of the most fun live shows i've ever seen in my life thank you um if Fantastic Cat had a manifesto, what would it be? Um, you know, uh, we have these uh, we have these very rude T-shirts uh, that say "Fantastic Cat Folk Rock for Pussies," and at this point, they've eclipsed any merch item I've ever done in my life. They, they just we are we are now a, a, a T-shirt that puts out records. 
that's primarily okay. we're in the t-shirt business. <laughs> but I do. I Congratulations do think, on your entry into uh, thank you. We're in clothing. A, we're, in a, we're in apparel brand. Um, but I do think <laughs> I do think folk rock for pussies is is probably a pretty good mantra for us because it a couple of things. One, it I hope establishes right out of the gate that we don't take ourselves too seriously. That's one of those things where it's like when people write about it, they they use that they use the word supergroup, which is like yes, we are all in different projects and we're all coming together to form one thing but it's also like none of us are are famous or are stars in our own right so it always feels like a little i always feel like i have to put like super group in quotes like when someone says something like that so i feel like then we have uh then we had when we, when we did the cbs the the morning show the host introduced us as like a kind of super group and i was like that's it that's what it is. We are a kind of super. We group. are some kind of super group. <laughs> but anyway, so I think I feel like the folk rock for pussies thing. I, I hope lets people know that we don't take ourselves that seriously with it, and, and yeah. cut some of the pomp out of the like, oh, it's four guys from four bands, you know. And and obviously the, the comparisons to be made immediately are like, oh, traveling Wilburys, you know. Yep. And it's like, oh, so you're comparing yourselves to Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Roy Orbison. <laughs> So you can't, you know, you have to, you have to take some Who's of the, who? Who is who? Uh, you know, we, well, that's the other thing we, people will, will say like the Beatles, you know, thing. Cause we all, oh, yeah. we all sing and do all the harmonies and stuff and, and they'll do the, Oh, who's who? Or they'll point at the cats. And I always say, I think it's four Ringos. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, sounds about right. I, uh, so folk rock for pussies, I think ideally, uh, takes some of the piss out of the, the seriousness yeah. that people, I think. Uh, assume you must bring to it if you are a super group. People, uh, they can't see the video. I was doing air quotes with that. Oh yeah, there, there were air quotes. Um, well, the cool thing about being a, a boy band super group is you don't have to, um, your band doesn't have to assert that um, everyone in your gender is worthy of singing, being a human being. If you're like an all-female super group, your super group has to carry the mantle of like your entire race, gender, identity, and sure. uh, beliefs about the world. And, and But I think folk rock for pussies is a lot more fun. Well, I also think, you know, if you're in a female super group, it, you are, that word is attached to it. It's, it's oh yeah, yeah. it's an all women super group. Or it's an all well, I like band. to refer to any all male bands or boy bands to me. Yeah, like and you're in a you're in a boy band. Oh, I'm absolutely in a boy band. Uh, <laughs> we we say that all the time. Because uh, everyone sings. But but that's the thing uh, is is it's it's such a it's such a strange thing to feel the the things we feel like we have to put like a qualifier around yeah. like oh it's it's a it's a female band and it's like okay so a band. Yes, so a band. Yeah, I'm familiar. I, People I like, playing music I, together. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of that before. I like to I like to turn the focus back on all male groups because I'm like, you don't you don't know any women, right? You couldn't you couldn't get even one in your band. In our case, Something's we, we couldn't. Uh, no one, no one, no woman would spend the time with us. No, but we. Uh, that's my other thing too. Is is uh, I'll see like when they describe like a, a female singer songwriter as like a songstress. And, kill me and you're like okay kill me trigger warning it's, on this it's one. in kill it's, me it's used in writing so much but i don't understand it but have you ever heard someone be like oh yeah i'm going to see my favorite songstress like no one uses that word in conversation 
And, and because it's impossible to say, and it makes it sound like you're singing using your genitalia, which I find <laughs> intriguing, but not necessarily yeah. palatable. But I, I think at, at least on the flip side, then I'm, I would like to be referred to as a songster. You got it. As as a male, we have the power. I mean, we have the power here. Like I am, I am the interviewer, you and are I write the, the intros. The media elite. So, so I can start calling you yeah. my favorite songster. Your favorite that's in male a boy group. songster. <laughs> male songster. We're we're here today on Basic Folk with male songster Anthony Damato. I think that has a oh nice ring God. to that. Yeah, it does. We're changing the narrative. We're flipping the script. Um, okay, do you have time to do a lightning round before you get evicted from the Econo Lodge? Yeah, I'm past checkout, but they don't seem to be super strict with anything here. Wow. The life of luxury of a <laughs> successful male songster. Okay. Lightning round is just a bunch of quick questions. First thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Okay. Jeans or sweatpants? Jeans. Every day. Sweet or savory snacks? Sweet. The chocolate man. Hmm. Are you competitive? Yes. What is the best holiday? Ooh, I'm a, I'm a Thanksgiving fan. What is your favorite New York restaurant? You know, I, I, I still don't have a good answer for this one. Uh, but I, I will say, uh, my wife and I, it was just our anniversary recently, and we were... <gasps> Happy anniversary! Thank you. We were on a, a... Hi, Jane. We were on a stroll in uh, in the West Village, and we stopped in this little Italian spot called uh, Pece. And man, it was great. Old school Italian place, like eight tables, uh, old tin ceiling kind of thing, you know? And so I'm not going to say that's my favorite uh, New York restaurant. This this response has gone on too long for the lightning round. It's Peche. It's my favorite kind (laughs) of New York restaurant. I'm trying to crack down so future guests don't think they can go on and on explaining their reasoning, their background, as a male, qualifying their answers. As a male songster, <laughs> I believe I'm entitled <laughs> to take as much time who's, okay, as I who's like. Run, who's, whose show are we on? Whose show are we on? <laughs> We're on okay, your what's show. your middle name? Matthew. <laughs> do you know any jokes? Uh, do I know any jokes? I've, I've heard jokes before, yeah. Can you tell us one now? Um, why did the why did the frog have to take the bus? I don't know. Because his car got towed. Oh, that's cute. There you go. Okay, what's your favorite pasta shape? Oh, uh, I like uh, I like anything that's got like a little little corkscrew vibe to it. You know, it can be tight, can be loose. And finally, is there sentient alien life out there? Probably. Yeah. Anthony D'Amato, you are one of my favorite male songsters out there. Possibly the only. Yeah, and even though we got in a fight during this episode, I still think that you've been a fantastic guest, Thank and you. I love your new album. At first, there was nothing. Everybody go get that new record. Thank you so much for talking with us Thank you here for having on me. Basic Folk. My pleasure. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. You can check out our website, basicfolk.com, or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please feel free to share this episode with a friend, you know, because it's a nice thing to do because, you know, thinking of people is a nice thing to do and then acting upon that thought is also a nice thing to do. Regardless, we like it that you listened all the way to the end and you're hearing me talk about this uh, stuff at the end because it's the end of the podcast. 
It's the end of the podcast, so I'm going to wrap it up now. Okay, thanks for listening. Mm, Bye. Bye.